I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Nolan Bushnell, founder of the gaming company Atari and Chuck E. Cheese restaurant chain. Nolan is considered one of the pioneers of the video game industry, having created the first coin-operated game, as well as Atari's debut game, Pong. Nolan is the author of Finding the Next Steve Jobs. He gave Steve his first job at Atari before Steve started Apple in 1976. Welcome. It's my pleasure. Now, while we were doing a sound check before starting the interview, you started to recite the words from the Jabberwocky, a nonsense poem by Lewis Carroll from the novel Through the Looking Glass. It's a, it's a really surprising sound check that people <laughs> I do on occasion. <laughs> the Jabberwock with eyes of flame came whiffling through the tonguey wood and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through he took his vor- his vorpal blade, went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with its head he went clomping back. Have you memorized a number of poems and excerpts of stories? Oh, yeah. I mean, we used to do this thing with car trips with a lot of kids. You were always going to give kids 20 or 30 bucks on a vacation. So while we were getting there, I would always make the kids memorize poems for which they'd get five bucks. And so by the time you get there, the kids would all know a certain amount of poems. And they've all said that they thought it was stupid at the time, but they really appreciated it ultimately. Now, when you were growing up, you were one of four. Correct. Did your parents also create a game-like environment? We played a lot of games when I was growing up. It was a ability that we had to constantly sort of mess around and and play on an intellectual level. Like I learned to play chess when I was like first grade. Your mother was a teacher and your father was in the concrete business. That's correct. What exactly did they do? They primarily did curb and gutter and sidewalks. Would you ever work with the concrete just in your own time and create things with the concrete? Oh yeah. Like uh, what? Well, I went through a bomb-making phase where I, in my backyard, I created a blockhouse. If you're going to set off bombs, you, you don't want to get hurt. <laughs> Your father died when you were 15 years old. What role did you play in the company after he died? I finished up all his contracts and then sold the equipment and closed the business down. Why was the onus or the opportunity placed on you to do it versus somebody else in your family? Well, all I had were sisters. It was a Mormon household, and the male is considered to be the big honcho. But I also knew the business, from ordering the concrete to setting up the forms to dealing with the uh, surveyors. It just seemed normal. Incidentally, you grew up in a Mormon household, and you now have eight children. Did your religion play a role in your wanting to have as many children as you do? I had become a agnostic heathen at 18. My actual feeling about having a lot of kids came from my intellectual arrogance. I literally felt that I that the world would be better off if I had a lot of my DNA out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> the intellectual arrogance sometimes, you know, my wife get, just gets so mad at me when I say that. 
When you were a young boy, in addition to having exposure to your father's business, you had entrepreneurial leanings. You had a TV set repair business when you were you you were ten. What was the nature of that? If you were a geek in the fifties, you were a ham radio operator. Ham radio, by the way, allowed you to talk to foreigners. Is that correct? That's correct. Ham radio was an expensive hobby. And so I knew there had to be a way to make more money than the traditional 10-year-old venues. And it really started out by me fixing the family's TV set. You would go to people's homes to fix their televisions, uh, and there's some folklore that you would buy the parts, let's say, at 10 cents and claim that they were 30 cents uh, to fix. It was actually more like I'd buy the tubes for about a buck and a quarter. And you typically charge 3 to $5 for a tube. You worked at amusement parks during college. And so you, you, you were surrounded by games, whether it was chess in first grade or the amusement parks. And did you have a sense that you wanted to have a career in game creation? Or was that more accidental? I'm not sure that it was accidental because I had a certain facility for Barkerism, if you would. I mean, I, I did a lot of debate in high school. And, and if you really look at the pathway, whether it's ham radio, you know, posing as an adult debate, Barkerism, I, I, these were all verbal skills. Could you show me some of your Barkerism? Oh, absolutely. Um, if you really want a stuffed animal, this is the place to get it. But... If you play for 50 cents, that's three times the size animals. And if I was talking to a young man, Mm -hmm. I'd say, your girl will love you forever. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Nolan Bushnell, founder of the gaming company Atari and Chuck E. Cheese restaurant chain. You founded Atari in 1972 with a gentleman, Ted Dabney, whom you bought out quite quickly. But before Atari, you had worked at a company called Ampex, which made tape recorders, among other things. And from there, you started your first gaming company called Syzygy. And again, this was right before Atari. It's the last S in the dictionary. And as a, as a geek, I thought it was a really cool company name. You started Syzygy and created your first game called Computer Space, which was modeled after a game called Space War that, that you had Correct. seen. And this was the first coin-operated game. Correct. And you then started Atari in 1972. Your first uh, game was Pong. This, too, was kind of a copy of another game you had seen. Correct. Can you describe that? During the 60s, with the big computers, we we all programmed a lot of different games. And, of course, one of them was a ping-pong game. When I started Atari, our plan was to be the development house because we had no factory, we had no money. So we thought, we'll just sell, sell our skills for royalties. Game over. So Atari actually started out as a game design business for other people. Precisely. And so... Uh, We had these contracts, and our first employee was a guy named Al Alcorn. You know, we'd been in the business for a couple of years, and somebody says, there's a video game being shown in uh, Northern California, and we've got competition. Mm -hmm. So I had to go up and see it, and it was the Magnavox Odyssey, which was the consumer game. 
I looked at it and it was fuzzy and, and a lot of things. And I said, oh, there's, this, this is no competition at all. But I looked around and saw that they were playing a game of simulated ping pong. People were kind of having fun with it. And I thought, well, this would be a good learning thing. So I defined the, the game. I said, do a ping pong game for me. Mm-hmm. To Al. And, to Al. And literally in a week, he had it wired up and was working. And uh, as we say, the rest is history. Why was it so successful initially? I think that it was the right game at the right time. First of all, it was simple. You could play the game holding a beer in one hand and, and playing the game with the other. There was also a funny thing, and I'm not sure exactly how important it was, but the typical woman could beat the typical man playing Pong. And it was because women have better small muscle coordination than men do. Mm. Men have bigger, large, better large muscle coordination, i.e. throwing a ball, that sort of thing. When it comes to just turning the knob precisely, women were much better. And this was just sort of the dawn of women's liberation and all that sort of stuff. And so it was massively gratifying to women to be able to come up and beat the college football hero. And you debuted Pong at a local bar, and folklore is that you preloaded the machines with coins to make it seem like they were the machine was more popular than... No, we really. actually did that later. This one was just a test, and there were actually lines out, out the door so that they could come and play Pong. So when did you preload the machines to make it seem like the machine was more popular than it was? Well, later on, uh, as we got into production, people always wanted to test the machines. And so we would give the machine to one of our distributors who would put it into a random location and see how well it did. And so on Sundays, I'd kind of drive around and figure out where the machine was, find it, and put put 50 or $200 worth of quarters in it. Now, it seems like, though, while the game uh, had wide adoption, that a crucial pivot moment for you was a couple years later in 1975 when some engineers came to you presenting a consumer version of Pong. Correct. And this obviously caused it, caused it to be pervasive internationally. Was there one distributor or one store, chain of stores, that really helped you get the product out to market? Absolutely. In fact... We did the consumer pong. We took it to the toy show, and we set up our booth, and we thought that we were going to, it was going to be a tsunami of people wanting it. We sold zero. Hmm. And the reason was is the toy business at that time sort of had an artificial price ceiling of about 35 bucks, and we were trying to get 79 for for our unit, and we were somewhat crestfallen. UNL. Yeah. And ultimately, we thought, well, maybe we need to sell it through TV shops. Hmm. And uh, they didn't want to touch it because they were in the business of financing things, and they didn't want to finance the game. And finally, uh, we called Sears, and Sears had a sporting goods department that essentially turned into a family room business selling ping pong tables and pool tables for family rooms. And the previous year, they'd had a pinball, a consumer pinball machine that they sold out of. Mm. And they thought, okay, Pong is in bars, pinballs are in bars, this, this is an appropriate thing for us. And so they climbed onto it, and it was a blowout for us. 
It's always interesting to me how you have these accidental allies, how really that one decision maker at Sears could have been that fulcrum for you. Things sometimes are so binary. Mm -hmm. It's really frightening and surprising that they they worked for us. And in the, in the 80s, you saw Pong in places as far afield as Saudi Arabia, where two close friends of mine were allowed to play for 15 minutes a day, except when their parents were shopping, they'd play longer. Right. Where are some of the more exotic places that you've seen Pong machines? Well, I, I remember distinctly, I was uh, traveling in Spain uh, to one of these up-the-hill fortress cities, and you drive up and you say, gee, I know, I bet I'm the first American that's ever been here. And then you go into the local bar and there was a pong. <laughs> I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Nolan Bushnell, co-founder of the gaming company Atari. We'll hear more from Nolan coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Nolan Bushnell, founder of the gaming company Atari and Chuck E. Cheese restaurant chain. Nolan is considered one of the pioneers of the video game industry. He was an advisor to Steve Jobs throughout Steve's life. He's the author of Finding the Next Steve Jobs. I want to talk about the culture of Atari that you created. You allowed people, such as Steve Jobs, to work the night shifts. How come? I felt that anybody with skill, you should be able to find an adaptation in the workforce to allow that skill to prosper without necessarily it being disruptive to the rest of the environment. And uh, Steve was a little bit uh, difficult. A lot of people really wanted to have him fired because he was direct spoken and he didn't bathe very often at the time. And, And I felt, okay. I'll just put him on the engineering night shift, which incidentally didn't exist before then. It was partially that, and partially I knew that he and Wozniak hung out a lot, and Wozniak was working at Hewlett-Packard. And so I knew if I put Steve on the night shift, I'd get two Steves for the price of one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You really supported Steve. Uh, You paid for his meditation retreats in India, and this is even after he said he was going to stop working at Atari. Well, that's... That's sort of right and sort of wrong. Mm -hmm. He put in his uh, resignation, and uh, we had a problem in Germany. Nobody wanted to go over and take care of it, but Steve had the skills, and I said, would you go fix the problem in Germany? And uh, he said, yeah, um, but instead of a a return trip, I just want to take that stub of the ticket and, and go on to India. And I said, fine. The success of Pong uh, caused you, ironically, not to focus on the computer business. At that time, you had Steve Jobs and Wozniak come to you and say, would you like to buy our little fledgling company, Apple, for $50,000 and own a third of the company? And you said, well, you know what? We're too occupied right now to get involved, and I'd like to stick with the gaming business because the gaming business was thriving. Yes. So it's ironic to me that Pong's success caused you, in a way, to turn down owning a third of Apple. What are your thoughts about that? It, it wasn't as much Pong's success as the the Atari VCS, the programmable one, which we did in, in 76. And uh, I think there were two or three issues for me at the time. One, I wasn't convinced that, that Jobs would be a good CEO. 
And second, I knew that we had plans to get into the computer business subsequently, but we felt that there needed to be a higher level of integration for a personal computer. You were right about Steve not being a good CEO, at least initially. Initially, and and, and I think that one of the unsung heroes of Apple Computer is Mike Markla, who was an extraordinary executive that really brought Apple the gravitas and the adult management that was necessary at the time. Perhaps it was also Steve's own time in the desert after he was ousted from Apple the first time to really force him to have more maturity and perspective. You know, there's nothing like a few hard knocks to knock some of the edges off you. And speaking of a few hard knocks, you had a few dark years yourself after selling Atari to Warner Brothers for $28 million. You butted heads with the Warner Brothers team over how Atari should be run. Ultimately, you left the company. Can you describe what happened? You know, they were determined to dismantle the corporate culture because mm-hmm. it was a little too freewheeling for them. And they were, you know, we used to call them the suits. One point of contention was with Atari's integration into the restaurant business with Chuck E. Cheese Pizza. Can you describe that? Yeah, they said, why would we want to be in the restaurant business? And I said, well, it's vertical integration towards the market. I said, we're selling coin-operated games for $1,500 to $2,000 at the time. I said, over their life, they'll earn $30,000 to $50,000 didn't take rocket science to say that you're on the wrong side of the transaction. You really want to be in an environment where you're collecting the coin. And that's what Chuck E. Cheese was all about. And you bought the restaurant chain from Warner Brothers for, was it a half a million dollars? Half a million dollars. It went bankrupt in 1984. Uh, well, you know, things get into trouble after I leave them somehow. And I'm not sure exactly why that is. But as you know, Atari really did a huge hiccup after I left because they, when they had sort of dismantled the the creative culture, they didn't bring any new games out. And so the fabled 1982-83 implosion of the video game business, totally predictable. In fact, I made more money shorting in Warner stock because I could see it coming mm-hmm. than I actually did on the sale. But that's mm-hmm. another story. And similarly, when you left Chuck E. Cheese also, the a, company suffered. Yeah, you know, Chuck E. Cheese was never about being in the restaurant business. It was all about a ecosystem around a big game center. Once I solve all the problems, I like to get professional managers in to mm-hmm. fix things. And sometimes that doesn't work. And we got a professional guy in that knew the restaurant business, and he wanted to turn it into a restaurant and with really disastrous results. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Nolan Bushnell, founder of the gaming company Atari and Chuck E. Cheese restaurant chain. I want to talk about Catalyst Technologies, which is the company that you created, or the business incubator, really, that you created after leaving leaving Warner Brothers. And it's striking to me how clairvoyant you've been uh, in predicting technologies even before their time. Um, some of the companies that you created at Catalyst was a company called Cadabrascope, which was a computer-assisted animation company. Tell me which company it it ultimately became. It ultimately became Pixar. It seems like a little-known fact to me that, that you had the germ for Pixar. 
it was one of those things where it can be very, very costly to be too far ahead of your time. The technology and the computers, the cost of computer MIPS at that time was incorrect. It really needed to come down in cost by almost an order of magnitude to make it a viable business. Uh, I didn't know that when we started it because I said, gee, you know, we can do all this manipulation of graphics. And though we did some really cool stuff, it, it was still cheaper to do it by hand. And so ultimately, you sold it to Lucas, uh, right. and then the company you know, became Pixar. Part of the reason you had to sell it was you were in financial distress after the Chuck E. Cheese incident. Is that correct? Yeah. Basically, I borrowed a lot of money and hypothecated my Chuck E. Cheese stock. And so when Chuck E. Cheese kind of went down, all of a sudden, my security covenants went away. And, uh, and it took me a little while to lick my wounds on that puppy. But more than that, I spent too much money chasing the personal robotics business. With your company, Androbot. Androbot. And that was another one where the technology, though close, was not quite good enough. What were the robots supposed to do, by the way? Oh, they're supposed to bring you beer. They collected static electricity uh, uh-huh. along the way. and Yeah, the when you have a computer and you get a blue screen of death, Nobody gets hurt. You just reboot and, and carry on. In the robotics business, all of your collision avoidance, all of your safety mechanisms become inoperative. Mm-hmm. And if you have a 50-pound robot hurtling across the room and the computer crashes, all of a sudden, nobody knows what the outcome's going to be. And we used to have nightmares about a robot running towards a stairwell while somebody was coming up, and all of a sudden, you have this 50-pound block of stuff coming down on your head. <laughs> uh, I've read that your wife doesn't really like to talk about these these years uh, with, with, with such failures. And you've mentioned that Nancy put you on a uh, robot 12-step program. <laughs> because you do, that is a love of yours. It really is. And I can't imagine the future without a personal robot. Another technology that perhaps was before its time, uh, you invented in 1985, ETAC. Correct. And that was an auto... 1983. In 1983, an auto navigation system that became the backbone for what companies? Google, you know. Google uh, Maps. Google Maps, Garmin, any of those. It it turns out that the company was successful. I mean, it had a good exit on it. To Rupert Murdoch. To Rupert Murdoch, yeah. But it it was one of those things where it was very obvious to me that... um, Automobile navigation, electronic, was just around the corner. How much of your headspace is occupied by these technologies that, oof, only they were fast-forwarded, 20 years they would work? How much of your psychology do these failures take up versus, you know, the, the pioneering uh, successes that you've had in your, in your quiet in, moments? In my quiet moments, I believe that you never know when the timing is going to be exactly right. And I think as I've gotten older, I'm more patient. For example, my current project is Brain Rush, which is all about changing the dynamics of how people learn using some of the best brain science. I personally believe that it is exactly the right time, exactly the right place. 
in addition to the timing being right, the product or the innovation might just have to be tweaked and reinvented a number of times before it works. In your book, you talk about companies like WD-40, you know, having several failures before they finally came up with a product that worked. What does WD-40 stand for? You know, the 40th iteration of a formula that uh, really cuts grease. (laughs) It was also striking to me the number of innovations that have been underappreciated at first due to a failure of imagination, yet turn out to be significantly impactful. You talk about in your book, for instance, the Xerox copy machine. What was said about the Xerox copy machine? Oh, they said that, you know, why would you need these? You know, carbon paper works really well. And the world's potential market for copy machines is 5,000 at most. Uh, The founders of Xerox explained why their photocopier market was not large enough to justify production. You know, it just goes on and on. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Nolan Bushnell, founder of the gaming company Atari and Chuck E. Cheese restaurant chain. In the literature I've read about you, I was expecting much more arrogance. Have you changed at all your disposition throughout your your life, your career? I think a little bit. Early on, I had some tremendous successes at a very young age. You were 29 when you started a, a Correct. And, and I think that, um, that that always gives you a little bit of an elevated sense of self. I was more arrogant in my 20s and, and 30s than I am now. What is the cause of the toning down of that arrogance, you know, perhaps in your personal life, for example, with your wife? Oh, I think um, my wife thought that I was a jerk. Um, How did you meet her? I met her. She was working. She was in pre-law at at the university, but her dad owned a restaurant, and she would bartend and waitress over the weekends. And that was right around the corner from the Atari factory. And I just thought she was spectacular, spunky and and really smart. And uh, I decided that she was worth pursuing. And so... Slowly, I found out what she thought was objectionable about me, and I modified, at least around her. (laughs) What are some examples of the things that offended her? Oh, I think that that she, I would often come in and hold court with a bunch of uh, the Atari employees. It was more of a Lord of the Manor kind of relationship than a bunch of band of brothers. And uh, she didn't like that. And uh, I think she didn't like, there were a lot of women that were sort of clustering around me. I mean, I was I was young and some people thought I was good looking and rich. And that, that tends to attract a, lot, attract a lot of riffraff. And my wife just didn't want to have to deal with that. So you claimed to her that you would, you would change? Oh, no, no, I, I didn't tell her I was going to change. I, I changed. I was, a, I was a good poser. I think I'm a great husband. I can honestly say that we've been married 36 years now, and I would do it all over again. And yeah, I think in, uh, that, that she thinks the same way. To what extent, aside from your wife, did the challenging years professionally, to what extent did that also cause you to just have a little bit more realistic sense of self? Oh, it's there is nothing like a, an, a major face plant that, that to say, hey, you're not as cool as you thought you were. 
You were a mentor to Steve Jobs throughout his his life. And what's striking to me in understanding your life is how many parallels you had with Steve Jobs and with Apple. One is the computers for the masses at Apple versus, you know, gaming for the masses at Atari or Steve's poaching people from Hewlett Packard or from Atari. Oh, poached a lot from us. And you poached a lot from Ampex, the company that you had worked prior. Or Nolan Bushnell, your right-hand man was Al Eckhorn, and Steve's right-hand man was Wozniak. And both of your partners were really the engineering minds, and you two were the marketing minds. So you guys seem to pong off each other. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, I consider myself to be a great engineer, too, though. And and the I think that there are certain kinds of entrepreneurs that see wonderful technology, whether it be the mouse at Xerox Park with Steve or seeing the uh, opportunities for video games from the big computer labs. You know, this this whole idea of that translation from the very, very esoteric, the very expensive, the very cutting edge into figuring out a way to make it available. And a lot of times it takes a little bit of a cheat. You had an influence on Steve's life, starting with you and Al Alcorn employing him at Atari. How was he influential in your life, just on a personal level? Well, I think Steve, to me, was always a beacon of enthusiasm. And more than that, we used to have these wonderful, wide-ranging conversations about philosophy. I mean, I was always from the school of uh, Hegel and Kant and the, the Western philosophers, and, and Steve was more about Confucius and Buddhism and, uh, and the Eastern philosophers. And I think that the proper synthesis of a life plan is to really have a synthesis between the Eastern philosophical positions and the Western. And speaking of this fusion, right before we started the interview, you actually did a lotus pose for me, a lotus pose handstand for me, right before we we recorded. Yeah, it's embarrassing. (laughs) The path to nirvana is, I think, to be as broad in your curiosity and your database as you possibly can. And it, it really has to do with brain science. For example, a lot of people think, gee, I do the New York Times crossword puzzle every day, therefore my brain is really getting smart. No. It turns out that all the neurogenesis of doing the New York Times crossword puzzle happened probably the first six months that you were doing it. And after that, nobody home. I like to play chess. I like to play Go. I'd be willing to bet that 90% of the neurogenesis for me playing chess happened between the ages of second and third grade. And even though I've been playing the rest of my life, nobody, nothing there. You've got to do different things. And you certainly have so many hobbies, from chess to sailing to debate to what else is there? Well, on on my list, uh, I am going to start doing some long-distance bicycling. I just got back from Machu Picchu. I plan to do probably another six companies. Well, thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. My guest has been Nolan Bushnell. Coming up, we'll meet Skip Bennett, founder of Island Creek Oysters. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. From Scratch.
I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is the oyster farmer, Skip Bennett. Skip is the founder of Island Creek Oysters, which grows oysters and supplies them to more than 400 chefs across the United States. Restaurants that serve his oysters include Thomas Keller's Per Se and French Laundry, the Eastern Standard in Boston, and the Catbird Seat in Nashville, Tennessee. Island Creek Oysters also operates its own restaurants called the Island Creek Oyster Bar and Row 34 in Boston, Massachusetts. Skip started Island Creek Oysters in Duxbury, Massachusetts in 1990. He sells roughly 120,000 oysters per week or 5 million oysters per year. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. I would like to start with understanding how oysters grow. Where we are, there's no wild oysters, so all of our oysters begin their life in a, in a hatchery. We pick out oysters that have done really well in Duxbury Bay. We bring those in and, and we spawn them. They're sequential hermaphrodites, meaning that they're either male or female, but they switch back and forth. Hmm. Um, so we don't know until they release either eggs or sperm which one they are. And when they start to release, we isolate them and then just add a little bit of sperm and into the eggs and they start to fertilize right before your eyes. What do the oysters eat while they're growing? So they, they only eat live uh, phytoplankton. Algae? It is algae, yeah. In the hatchery, we grow six different species of plankton. As soon as we can get them big enough to get them out the door, and we also have to wait until the water's warm enough that there's plankton in the water and that they can survive. And then they're on their own. How does their shell form? This is uh, made of calcium carbonate. They get it through the, the carbon in the water. The more that we can tumble them around, too, just bang them up a little bit in that summer, they, you can actually get the shell to grow more dense. So. Uh, and what happens if you don't tumble them up a they, little bit? They can, they can grow long and thin shells, and really we want an oyster that's pretty compact. You know, maybe two and a half to three inches would be, for me, the ideal oyster with a really deep cup so that it has um, a, lot of, a lot of meat inside. We talk about terroir, uh, which is, you know, the land that wine might grow in. And similarly, you use a term, meroir, which is kind of the, the environment that the oyster grows in. It is, well, it is. We select really round oysters, which are maybe a little non-traditional. Our oysters are very fluted, um, so we, we select for that. And then there's, you know, the type of plankton that grows in the water and the minerals that are there mm-hmm. that play into the flavor profile. How would you describe the taste of your oyster? They change seasonally a little bit, but they I always describe them as like super briny up front. And then there's kind of a, a, a real um, vegetal sweetness to them. And I think they, they finish very buttery. What is the history of oysters in the United States? How long have people been eating oysters? Well, I think, you know, probably it goes back to the first settlers and clearly the Native Americans long before the settlers ate a lot of oysters. And we know that from the shell middens, the piles that were in the Chesapeake and in Maine, these massive piles of, of ancient shells. Over the years, a hundred years ago, it was a big part of our culture. My dad, who grew up in the in the 40s, remembers having oyster stew every Wednesday night. And it was just because it was such a plentiful source of protein. In the 50s and the 60s, there were two diseases that wiped out kind of the largest populations of oysters in the United States. And, um, and that part of our culture was lost. 
Why is there now this renaissance of oyster culture in the United States? Why are we seeing it on more menus now? When when I first started selling oysters in Boston, there was just a handful of restaurants that had oysters on the menu. And as we produced more and more, there were more and more restaurants that had it on the menu. And we used to think, wow, aren't we lucky? We kind of caught this while you know, it's on the rise. But we realized that really what was going on was now that there was a local kind of dependable, high-quality source of oysters, that chefs were more willing to put them on the menu. So and it I was think, you. Sorry, keep well, going. Well, it was me and, and you know a handful of other farmers at that time. And now there's a, a ton of oyster farmers on the East Coast. And it's really, it's been the rebirth of this oyster culture that's pretty interesting. You talk about how you farm your oysters, but there's this kind of negative connotation attached to farming a bit. (laughs) And I know you do it in a clean way, but um, talk to me about that for a moment. Well, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that there is a negative connotation around it because the crux of the issue is that there are seven billion people on earth now and not enough food to go around. You know, shellfish farming is probably one of the most sustainable ways to grow protein because there's not a lot of inputs. So we're not growing grass to feed animals or growing grains to feed animals and mm-hmm. we're not using fertilizers or water. It's mm-hmm. really what the oyster or the shellfish are eating to create the protein is something that's a nuisance to the water. Nitrogen. It is, yeah. Well, Wait. the nitrogen causes excessive algal blooms. And when people live and, and work and farm or around the watershed, the nitrogen leaches into the water and you get excessive algal blooms, which shade out plant life and use up dissolved oxygen. So it really can make an inhospitable environment for fish and shellfish. So the oysters are natural vacuum cleaners in a way of this nuisance? They are. They remediate the, the nitrogen and, and they're turning the the algae into protein, which is amazing. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Skip Bennett, the founder of Island Creek Oysters, a company that harvests oysters and sells them to more than 400 chefs in the United States. Restaurants that serve Island Creek oysters include Shaw's Crab House in Chicago, King's Seafood in Los Angeles, and the Oyster Bar in New York's Grand Central Station. You grew up in Duxbury, Massachusetts, and shellfishing is an important part of your life. Yet, when you graduated from college in 1989, you had a finance degree and you thought you'd work on Wall Street. How come? You know, it was the 80s, and I loved finance when I was in school, and um, I had a lot of friends that were in New York. I I told everybody I was just going to work on the Bay for one more summer and try to save enough money to buy a suit and get my resume together. I'm still working on it. (laughs) How did that not happen? Well, so in 1989, I was um, digging mussels in Duxbury, and uh, I really loved... I loved working outside. I loved the independence of working on the bay, the physical work. It was, it just suited me. I heard about some guys out on the Cape, way out in Wellfleet, that were growing clams. I thought that sounded kind of interesting. As fishermen, they were barely making grocery money. And that now that they were growing clams, they were all driving around in new trucks and going to Florida for the winter. I thought, what else do I need? So you discovered these, these clam producers, and you started then a clam business. I did. I started a clam farm and the town of Duxbury was generous enough to license me three acres of kind of non-productive areas in the bay. Um, So I got three acres and started growing clams. I didn't have any money. 
Mm-hmm. I couldn't borrow money. It was I couldn't imagine going to a bank and telling them I was going to borrow money to put clam seed in, a, in the bay. Did you try? No, I don't think so. And who was this? This was yourself and who it was, else? It was really me back in those days, and I was shellfishing. That, that was where I got the money to buy the clam seed. So it was really hard-earned money, you know, bent over in the mud digging clams to save enough money to buy the clam seed. So that went along pretty well. And each year I started harvesting in 93. So I really rolled that money back into the clam farm. And in 95, I got wiped out by a, a protozoan parasite. It's specific to clams. It was tough. I don't, I really needed to at least try another option. And this is while your buddies are working in New York in suits on Wall Street. Yeah. Which and- was probably, you know, in retrospect, being in debt was really hard. And it was really the uncertainty of what I was doing with my life that was the most difficult. At some level, it felt incredibly irresponsible. Just day to day, even though it was challenging, were you just like existentially feeling fulfilled or were you more stressed out about the income issue? Well, I was stressed out about the income, but I had no doubt that's what I was supposed to be doing with my life. What about your parents? What were they doing? Um, well, my dad was a lobsterman and um, I think they thought I was crazy. And your dad also owned a gas station. He did, yep. And I grew up working there as a kid. So you thought, all right, I'll try oysters on. Yep. And there was this farm you discovered in Maine called, uh, appropriately, the the Chance Along Farm. (laughs) How did you come into contact with them? They had a nursery at Chance Along Farm, which was owned by the Horn family. Uh, So they were growing seed up there. By seed, you mean? We refer to, you know, baby shellfish as seed, you know, like a half an inch. They were already metamorphosed baby oysters that they had grown all summer long. They were really, really pioneers in figuring out how to grow seed, um, which really kind of made a match made in heaven where, you know, I bought seed from them, brought it back, and I had pretty good success on the grow outside and um, kind of struck up a friendship with them. And in 97, their son Christian moved down to Duxbury. He and I really kind of pioneered the the grow out part in Duxbury. Now, you know, when you say you were the sole fisherman or the sole oyster farmer and now you had this partner, I think of like the old man in the sea alone on the ocean. But what was your social life like at the time? I was working all the time and it was really nice to suddenly have somebody that understood. Um, For the most part, when I would talk about what I was doing on the water, people's eyes would glaze over and they really had no idea of what I was talking about. And at that point, I was newly married. I had a a little baby, a 96 and 98. Yeah, so I had two. So I was busy. What is your wife's name? uh, I'm divorced. What was? Shannon. And what did she make of what you were doing? I think she thought I was crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was challenging for both of us. In 2001, you had a pivot moment that was uh, coincident with September 11th happening. People were no longer wanted to buy, you know, luxury items, which oysters were considered part of. Um, but why did that occurrence actually help your business, ironically? Well, I had a friend who, a college friend who was working in high tech. So he was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I was talking with him and complaining about how desperate I was to sell oysters. And he told me about a restaurant in Cambridge called the East Coast Grill. He said that they had oysters on the menu. So I got in my old pickup truck and out of desperation drove up there and I met Chris Lessinger, the owner of the East Coast Grill. And um, I didn't know if 
if he'd laugh at me or if they'd kick me out of the restaurant. But he and um, Eric Isusheff, they couldn't believe that, A, there was an oyster farmer in Massachusetts, and B, that he was standing in their restaurant. So mm. basically he said, you know, we want to buy all of our oysters from you. On that kind of momentum, I came back and I had a book that somebody had given me. It was the history of oysters. And in the back of the book, there were these famous oyster bars all across the United States. So I was flipping through it and I thought, well, I'll give it a try. And um, the first one I called was a place called Le Bernardin <laughs> in Manhattan. And I asked to speak to the kitchen and they asked why. And I, I told them and they said, hang on. And I got this guy on the phone. His name was Eric. And I couldn't hardly understand him because mm -hmm. of his French accent. And we talked about oysters and oysters in France. And he, he told me what he wanted for the oysters. So I sent him a sample. He told me he wanted smaller, deeper cup oysters. So again, we kept kind of culling through and found the oysters that he wanted. And we started selling to Eric Repair at Le Bernardin. Now, uh, so from there, it was, you know, the... Um, Old Ever Grill in Washington, D.C., Water Grill in L.A., Samson Street Oyster Bar in Philadelphia. We just started hitting all these great old oyster bars. And so it was ultimately you're getting in your truck and you're going yourself to connect with these chefs directly, yeah. uh, such as Eric Repair at Le Bernardin. And uh, Le Bernardin being one of the most um, prominent seafood restaurants in New York City and the East Coast Grill in Boston, that, that caused your, your situation to turn around. Yeah, and it really, it, it was the beginning of kind of the model that we built. And in retrospect, it was the beginning of, of farm to table. Right. It was just that our farm was in the water. How did relationships with, let's say, uh, the French Laundry and T Thomas Keller, per se, how did, how did that originate? Well, that, that's actually a pretty interesting one. The beginning was that when Thomas opened in New York, he opened per se, they, they had a fire in the kitchen. You know, they'd spent years building this restaurant and it must have been devastating for them, you know, for him and also for the staff. But they regrouped after the fire, and, and Thomas said, I want something good to come out of this. Go out and find cool new products, he told the whole staff. And two chefs, um, Rory Herman and Chris Lahamadou, found us. After a few years of, of serving the per se, we reached out to French Laundry, and we were able to, um, you know, to get into French Laundry as well. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Skip Bennett, the founder of Island Creek Oysters. Just as Thomas Keller starts off with a fire in his restaurant, uh, you started out with the bay uh, freezing. Can you can you tell us that yeah, story? Yeah. So every once in a while, the bay will freeze over completely, and um, it was an exceptionally cold winter, and the bay froze so solid that we were able to drive trucks out there. So at low tide, we were driving out on the ice and cutting through with chainsaws. The, the bay ice was about a foot thick. So we knew where the oysters were, and we could pull the oyster bags up through the ice. And it wasn't just per se. It was, you know, we had a, a whole bunch of restaurants that at that time we felt like we really couldn't let them down. In addition to having these direct relationships with these chefs, you also sell your oysters online. Uh, we, can we can do, you describe yeah. that a little more? Yeah, we have this kind of new e-commerce platform that we're, we're developing. We're really excited about it. Late last night, I, was, I went back to the hatchery, and I, I was 
kind of messing around with some stuff and I decided to grade one of the silos of seed and I dumped the seed out on the screen and started washing it through the screen to see how big they were and I realized that the pile was about two million. They were on a 500 micron screen They were, which makes them like the size of a flake of pepper, barely visible. And for, I've never done this before, but I started thinking about that there were two million oysters there, and where would these oysters end up? And it was kind of cool to think, you know, maybe they'll end up at somebody's dinner party in Aspen at Christmas time, or all the, you know, people's homes that they could end up with in, and how those people would be excited to get those oysters. How about the uh, oyster pearls? How does the pearl originate? So um, most of the pearls that the commercial pearls are grown, um, I think they're freshwater oysters. So mm-hmm. they're a different species. Our oysters will make pearls, but they're um, tiny. All, actually, all shellfish make pearls mm-hmm. um, or can make pearls. Mm-hmm. And uh, But all the ones that we found are like the size of a BB. So they're really small. It's still kind of kind of neat when you find one. You know, I've, I've found probably two or three in my whole career as an oyster farmer. So... Um, I'd have to be pretty patient to be a pearl farmer. Have you kept them? Um, I think, yeah, I have, I have one, and I, I've given the other ones away. You mentioned um, that, you, that you like the physical work of being out there, and I think, you know, my being in New York City, I've been thinking lately how we as human beings uh, need physical work. That's what we did on the farms 100 years ago, and all of us here in New York are kind of simulating that physical work yeah. in gyms and on exercise bikes. Do you think about that kind of more holistically at all? Unfortunately, I don't do the, as much physical work as I used to, but it, it is really, um, you know, I think it's important for all of us to not only do physical work, but to be outside and to be in the sun and, you know, um, just out in the elements. And I think it's really healthy. That's the way we've evolved mm-hmm. to, to be physical and to be out, outdoors. I think it's pretty, pretty unnatural the way that we live now. I was reading something recently on social media that they said that um, 10,000 year ago, man would have kicked our butts. They were farmers and they would have to trek out to the fields every day and the, you know, the physical work that they did day in and day out would put our running on treadmills and lifting weights to shame. Thank you very much for joining us. (laughs) Thank you for having me, Jessica. My guest has been Skip Bennett, founder of Island Creek Oysters. If you'd like to learn more about the show, please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org or follow us on Twitter at Jess G. Harris or find us on Facebook. I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. From Scratch.